just as you're finding Colossians chapter 1 and uh, that outline, let me start by asking you this, uh, brother or sister in Christ Jesus, who is Jesus to you? This Jesus whom you have your confidence in, this Jesus whom you say is your security, the one you trust, who is he to you? Well, let me put it another way. You've declared your confidence in him. What makes you so sure? Who is he to you that you would trust him? I reckon each one of us uh, here who has received Christ as Lord by faith uh, have come to him for all sorts of reasons. At conversion we are captivated by him and we say, yes, he is my Lord, I trust him. But for all sorts of different reasons. For some we may use a phrase like this, Jesus has come into my life. Jesus is for us the missing piece we've been looking for all along. The one that makes our life complete at last. I have had a God-shaped hole and at last he has come and it is full. And so I asked him into my life. And this is indeed a good reason to place your faith in Christ. As Paul himself will say in verse 27 of Colossians chapter 1, he will say, this is the Christian life, Christ in you. But is that all he is to you? Uh, The key piece uh, in the puzzle of life, uh, the piece you've been looking for all along that completes the picture. Or perhaps, uh, as many of us would say, Jesus is the one who fixes my life. I have problems only Jesus can fix, Uh, damage that only he can heal. I'm a sinner and only Jesus can get me off the hook. I'm going to die and only Jesus has power to change that. Jesus uh, is the guy I trust to fix the problems that I am powerless to fix. He's my fix-it man, a pretty impressive one, but that's who he is to me. Let me ask you, who is Jesus to you? that you trust him, not just when you received him when you first became a Christian, but now tonight, that you trust him still. Well, as Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, having heard, as we saw last week, that they have received Christ by faith, his concern for them is not just to clinch the deal of faith, that conversion, not just to see that moment that they become Christians. He's not just aiming to see them receive Christ, he is aiming to see them continue to walk in Christ every day of their life, It's a goal that he will explain very clearly to us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. That's what he wants. Now that you've received Christ, continue to walk in him. And so to that end, Paul petitioned God, as we saw last week. He bent on his knee in thankfulness for the faith that he had heard about, but also begged God to fill them with the knowledge of his will, fill them with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of him knowing that this is what would keep them walking with him all their life. And so as the letter continues, having prayed that prayer, Paul in part answers his own prayer with our next passage. He is going to fill them with the knowledge of God's will. And he does this for them and for us as we listen in on this letter, to, to, for us to see the full dimensions of who Jesus really is to us. Paul's aim is to show that there is not a single thought idea, philosophy, challenge, temptation, ambition, worth abandoning Jesus for, nothing. And so the Apostle's words that we will read here tonight are of great help to us because I reckon all too often our faith in Jesus is very shallow. Our faith in Jesus is shallow because in the end our understanding of our faith starts with us. I have a lack, Jesus fills it. 
I have a problem, Jesus fixes it. But here's a passage that says that to box Jesus in this way is to profoundly undervalue him. This passage will shatter our domestic Jesus, our you-complete-me-Jesus, our fix-it-man Jesus, and to show us who he really is to us. And so let's begin to see it together. In verse 15 we will start to see Paul outline Jesus and his relationship to all things, not just us, but all things. In these first two verses, 15 and 16, Paul gives us three things, three realities of who Jesus is. Here's the first one in verse 15. He is God revealed. He is the image of the invisible God. And already we see how much more Jesus is than the missing piece in our life or the fix-it guy. He is our God made known to us. No more mystery. No more guessing. No more, I like to think of God as this. Well, we can think all we like, but the truth has been revealed in Jesus. Who is he? He is God seen, God touched, God walked with, God spoken to, God with us. God showing us who he is and what a God we have. As you see uh, in the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, as you see what he did and what he thought, you see his impulse to compassion, his servant-heartedness. You see his friendship with sinners and the lowly and the despised and the outcast. You see what your God is like as you see his power, his immense power. But before we get to his power, see also this in verse 15. Not only is he God revealed to us, he is also humanity revealed to us. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of what man, uh, you and I, were created to be, uh, created in God's image as we were. He's everything that we were meant to be but are not. I mean, we see glimpses of our, of our image-bearingness, don't we? Glimpses of who we are as creatures created in his image, but they're just glimpses. Here for a moment and then gone. I've seen uh, some of them uh, in recent days, perhaps you have too, with uh, reports of these floods in Queensland, in Australia, hearing stories of amazing acts of selflessness. I was reading one today of a, of a teenager named Jordan Rice and he and his mum and his younger brother were stuck on the top of a car in the, in the centre of Toowoomba, one of the big towns in Queensland, as the, as the floodwaters rushed upon them. Eventually an old guy standing on the side of, uh, of this street where they were being swamped by this water tied a rope around himself and went to the middle of the river where they were. And just as the moment came for Jordan to be rescued, he said, no, rescue my brother first. His little brother was rescued and as the, uh, the man was going back to rescue the others, they had been swept away already. Flickers of our true self, our compassion, our impulse towards servant-heartedness and then they're gone. Did you hear it of, of the, uh, one of the heroes of the 7-7 rescuers as, as the bombs hit London, as this man, uh, fireman, took people out of the rubble? Amazing heroics, amazing selflessness. And yet just this week, uh, busted in a hundred million pound drug bust. Just glimpses and then it's gone. Well, who is Jesus? Well, what we could have had, who we could have been, he is. 
Uh, But again, he's much more than just a man fully realising his potential. He is again, verse 15, he is our king. You see it there, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now when it says this here, it doesn't mean that he was the first thing created. The context will show us in a moment that he indeed is our creator. And the New Testament makes that clear to us again and again. John 1.1, he was there from the beginning, before the beginning. This reference to the firstborn is his rank. He is king, supreme over all creation, king over everything you see, absolutely everything. You see how anemic our understanding of who Jesus is can be? He's not just the guy who fills the gap. He's not just the guy who fixes what's wrong. Who is Jesus to me? He's the one I bow the knee before. He's the one who created my lips for the very purpose of his praise. He is God my King. Now what makes that claim valid? Why is Jesus right to claim ownership over you and rule over all things? Well, verse 16 tells us that. And let me read it again in a a slightly different translation. Here's verse 16. In him were all things created, those in the heavens and those upon the earth, those visible and those invisible, whether thrones, whether lordships, whether principalities, whether authorities, all things through him and all things for him. Three wonderful statements of who he is in relation to all things. Firstly, at the start of the verse it says, by him, but it's really in him. All things were created within the sphere of Jesus Christ's influence. There's nothing outside his sphere of influence, nothing at all. It doesn't matter where I am in this world, in the heavens, in the earth, he's in charge. And not just what I'm aware of either. Do you see it there? He is in charge of the seen and the unseen. We humans uh, might in our our intellect discover something new next week and, and be euphoric about it. Jesus has already claimed mine. And all the powers and the influences in this world are in his sphere. In him all things were created. And again, do you see the absurdity of our vision of Jesus in my life? My pocket-sized Jesus? Jesus in my life is a bit like me saying, I invite Jesus to be part of my life. He, He can come along for the ride as I work and as I speak and as I live and as I relate. He gets to come along. The truth is it's the other way around. I am in Christ. When I come to him in faith, I am caught up in his immense life. I invite him in and he takes over. In him all things were created. Secondly, do you see it right near the end of this verse? Again, it says by him, but it's really through him. He's the powerful agent of all creation, the word by which all things came into being. And so who am I? I'm a dependent creature, that's who I am. I exist through him. You see how evil it is to ever take credit for the things I am or do in this world? As if I have done it. I have done it through my power, my intellect, my ingenuity. It's like the clay taking credit from the potter. It doesn't work. All things were created in him and through him. And finally, for him. He's the purpose of all things. He is what all life is for. 
And again, you see how this fills out uh, immensely the dimensions of what I mean when I say my faith is in Christ. I mean that everything I do is, in, is for him. My existence is for him. Paul will say later in the letter when he declares, uh, he'll say this when he declares this in chapter 3, whatever you do, in your words, in your deeds, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus because all things are for him. And just in case we haven't got it, who Jesus is to us, verse 17 says it again in a different way. In him all things hold together. Do you get that? As you head out on life this week, uh, make your plans of what the, what, the, what the week is going to involve and what you'll do tomorrow when you rise. Well, apart from his continuous activity, apart from his rule over all creation, the whole thing would fall apart. Uh, the order, the patterns, the, the structures in our world that the scientists lord and love and say proves that he doesn't exist are the very things that he holds together. The conditions, uh, the amazing conditions that make for life and breath on this planet. Well, the whole thing is held together because of who he is. And do you see how your trust, your security in him can't be domesticated? He's a bit bigger than just your life, isn't he? But I reckon there's a problem with all of this. Here, as we've seen this spectacular description of who Jesus really is in verses 15 to 17, this wonderful declaration of the king of all things. King over all, yes. But it's not what we see in all things, is it? As you look around our world, is, is that what you see? I mean, in what sense can we seriously claim that Jesus is king of all things? I mean, yes, he created all things. Yes, all things depend on him. But he's not now, right at this moment tonight, head of all things, is he? He holds all things together, says verse 17, but things fall apart. Just ask the Queenslanders that. He is head of all rulers and authorities and yet uh, I was reading this week that Robert Mugabe is lining up yet more terror and yet more violence and yet more bribery to win another election. He's the head of all people and yet so many live as his enemies. Now could it be that while these words are spectacular and inspiring and great to say as creeds as we do, that verses 15 to 17 is no more than empty rhetoric? Well, no, says God, not even slightly. This is his word of truth. You see, the truth is in our letter that, that Paul has been writing for us here, he's made no secret of the fact that Jesus is not head of all things, as he ought to be. The evidence has been there. Do you remember it from last week? There is indeed a problem, a, a disruption in all things. Have a look back to chapter 1, verse 13, and you'll see it there. Paul has already made reference to another king, another rule, another dominion. Another head, the dominion of darkness. We live in a world that has exchanged the rule of Jesus for the cruel dominion of Satan. Satan, who is the father of, well, all he can claim to have created is lies. The father of lies, lies about our God, lies about our king and our world has believed them. We have believed them. A world under the dominion of darkness, under the rule of Satan. Slaves, we're told in verse 14, slaves in need of redemption. 
slaves to sin, slaves under the sentence of death. No, all things are not under Christ. All things are not living as you would expect under King Jesus. They are dying. This creation is a rebellious, enslaved, dying creation. A dead man walking, if you will. Walking away from the author, the sustainer and the purpose of life. But see what the Spirit of God says next in verse 18. And within this sphere of all things, in, this, in, in the rebellious throes of death as it is, something new is happening. Here within the sphere of the heavens and the earth, the visible, the invisible, the sphere of thrones and powers and rulers or authorities, change is coming. It's why Paul bent the knee in thanksgiving in verse 3. It's why he begged God to fill these Colossians with the knowledge of his will to grasp fully what God is doing in all things, even now. He wants them and us to have our faith full of this knowledge such that no challenge, no fine-sounding argument, no experience will rock our faith in Jesus Christ. He wants them to know who Jesus is to them because the one in whom, through whom and for whom all things were created is indeed supreme. He is indeed in complete rule. He is the head. Over what you say, it's not what I see all around me, over what? You see it there in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. God is doing something new in all things. Where? Well, says Paul, to this humble gathering, a meeting in Philemon's house, I imagine a fairly pathetic gathering in Colossae. He, and he says to us tonight, you want to see where he is head, where he is in complete control and authority? You see it here in this gathering. The church is where he is starting something new in all things. The body of which he is the head, uh, it's not at this stage the totality of all things, but it is where he is beginning to make all things new. Take in who Jesus is to us. Here in this gathering, the difference he makes to us. This church that you are a part of is of extraordinary importance to all things. I'm not sure what you thought you came into tonight as you walked through the doors and as you found your place. But this is the news of the hour. This is the main event in our world. He is the head of this gathering. And here's why. Here's what he is creating in the church, both in Colossae and all over the world, as we saw back in verse 6. What's King Jesus doing in this place? Verse 18. He's beginning. You see, he's not only the, the beginning of creation, as we've already seen, he is the new beginning. Have a look at the contrast between verses 8, 15 and 18, and you'll see what I mean. Verse 15, we're told he is the firstborn over all creation. Verse 18, what are we told there? He is the firstborn from among the dead. Now pause here for a moment. You know, this is a passage that's well worn for us as Christians. As I said, we say it as a creed quite often and as I came to it this week, you sort of think, uh, I've been here before. And yet it's at this point that I was stopped still this week, firstborn from among the dead. See your gospel. The first creation, our current home, which is of course not our home, is in rebellious death. We know that. 
In fact, Paul will even be clearer in, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 13. He's not, he won't say it's in the throes of death. He says that if you're a slave to sin, if you're under the rule of Satan, you are dead. That's our world. And who is Jesus in a world like that? You see it in verse 18. He is among the dead. He's among the dead. Look again at who he is, this one. As we've seen in verses 15 to 17. Such a king, such a creator, such a sustainer, such power. And he's among the dead. You know, in Queensland, uh, one of the horrific things that has had to happen in, in recent days, I saw an interview about it this week as the army has been brought in with the, with the job of finding and recovering and identifying the dead amongst the scenes of devastation as the water subsides. They describe it as the most painstaking and heartbreaking job they've ever had. Can you imagine doing that? That's a scene that gets repeated around our world. It was seen in Arizona in, in the last few days as well as that brutal shooting took place. And for all the coverage that Queensland is getting, it's nothing like what's happening in Brazil at the moment. And it's a scene that is repeated on the domestic level as well, isn't it? This moment where we have to identify that someone we love and care for has died, we have to admit it. I remember having that job back in 1998 when my friend Greg died. One of the jobs that we had to do along with his parents is to go down to Braidwood where he had died in a car accident. His parents had the job of identifying his body and they asked us, uh, the other thing the police were after was to identify all his possessions that he had with him camping. And so there we were at Braidwood Police Station uh, with the job of seeing his mangled car covered in his blood and picking through the possessions in the car to identify which ones were Greg's. Each one of them had one of these on it. Miscellaneous property, it says. Dated 25th of February 1998, result of fatal motor vehicle accident at Braidwood and Coomer Road. It's a horrible job to identify those who are among the dead. And yet we are a world under the sentence of death. Why? Because we are a world that has kicked itself free from the author and sustainer and very purpose of life. What else do we expect? We are those who, verse 21 says, are alienated from God. Those who claim autonomy from Jesus, claim autonomy from the one who gives us life and breath and everything else. And God says to live that way is to live a deep and terrible estrangement in this world. You are a stranger in this world when you live that way. It's an alienation that shows itself in many ways, doesn't it? In him all things hold together. That's what verse 17 says. Well, apart from him the opposite is true. Apart from him things fall apart. We see it everywhere, don't we? And we find in our human experience only the most fragile and superficial togetherness with all things around us. And we see it with creation in scenes like Queensland and Brazil. And we see it in our relationship, our togetherness with one another. We saw it in Arizona, writ large there, but it happens in broken relationships everywhere. Conflict and tension and hostility are the hallmarks of living alienated from Christ. 
And even our connectedness to life itself is so fragile, isn't it? Strangers, that's who we are. And not as victims either in some sort of cosmic disharmony. Do you see there in verse 21, we are strangers because of what we have thought and done. Our minds are darkened towards God and closed to him, enemies. Our works will their evil. We claim credit for all that he has and all that he is and all that he has done through us as if we've done it. What a fall. Christ who made us and said of our humanity, very good. And now humanity is but an empty shell of what we were meant to be. Enemies at war with our creator, sinners who by their deeds do evil, not good. We are a world under the sentence of death. A sentence we feel acutely at times. And one day we too will be among the dead. But look again at verse 18. There among the dead, of all the things that must die in this world because of sin and because of our rebellion, there among the dead is this one. The one that verse 15 to 17 spoke of, this one, our king. That's what we remember tonight in the supper. What a moment of all the people to find among the dead, of all the people, he is among the dead. And who is he among the dead? Well, verse 20, he says, he says he's our peacemaker among the dead. Now, here's, a, here's a, a verse to have in your head as you come up for communion tonight. He made peace with you through the shedding of his blood. You were an enemy at war with your creator. At war, a war you were losing. But he, the firstborn, the creator, the sustainer, walks onto that battlefield and sheds his royal blood and pours it out and says in painful triumph, it is finished. He made peace with you through the shedding of his blood. And who is he among the dead? You see it there in verse 22. He is your substitute. You're a sinner. Unfit to be with him, although that's where you belong. Away from him with no way back. And verse 22, by Christ's physical body through death, he presents you now, holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. He is among the dead. And so drink tonight this wine and savour it. His blood has ended the war. And eat this bread and be filled because his body allows you to stand without any blame. And finally, who is he among the dead? Again, verse 18. He's the first. The first born from among the dead. The one for whom death worked backwards, who rose from the dead. You see what's happened here? The same one who in the very first moments of creation was the one who said, let there be life when there was nothing is the one who now says, let there be life when there's nothing left but death. Let there be new life, eternal life, immortal life. As Paul declares in triumph in chapter 2 verse 13, God made you alive in Christ. That's who he is among the dead. You see, in his resurrection, God was doing something fully comparable to the creation of all things. It was as big and as purposeful as that, as he rose Lord and King, first in the new creation, with so many to follow, so many that Revelation will say you can't count them. And in all of this, as we finish, see what this means for you tonight. See why he did it. He ends the war and it presents you alive and perfect in his sight. Why? Why did he do it? Well, to be with you, of course. 
He knocks down these colossal barriers that you may be with him again because it's the only place you're not a stranger in this world. Who is Jesus to you? He's the place where you belong, the only place. Who is he to you? He's everything. So much so that Paul will say later in this letter that your whole life is hidden in Christ. There's no part of your life that's not hidden in him. There's nothing else. So much so that he will say Christ is your life. And so if you're trusting him tonight, as verse 23 says, don't move. In him you've not found your gap filler or your spot fixer, but your everything. Don't move. Continue in your faith, established and firm. And do not move from the hope held out for you in the gospel, the hope of being with him. Don't move. Well, let's pray together.